Cats Run Podcast. Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to take a moment to thank all of our listeners for making the Black Cats Run podcast a part of your daily or weekly routine. Fitness and exercise, I think sometimes we think of that as something that people do for hobby or for fun, but it's also a big part of public health. How can we be active? We see changing rates in body weight in society and culture, rising levels of obesity and physical activity has a relationship to that. It affects how we feel as we age and it impacts our mental health, our ability to feel good about ourselves. And then when we feel good about ourselves as individuals, it's easier for us to feel good about other people and the spaces around us. And the conversations we have here about fitness and performance and training and racing apply also, I think, and I hope to those bigger picture contexts and spaces. I also want to welcome and thank all of our listeners from around the globe. In the short time that we've had this podcast up and running, we have listeners from the United States, the United Kingdom, from Australia, Belgium, Switzerland, and Japan. Welcome to everybody. I hope you've all been enjoying the podcast. Please check us out on Instagram at Black Cats Run. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you're thinking about and what you'd like to hear more of on the podcast. Let's get into today's episode. Learn to Fly, Episode 3, Finale. There's an alternative to the zones. Doesn't always seem obvious. Maybe that's because it's both obvious and impossible to see at the same time. What do we do? Well, when we don't know what to do. Cold War, year 13, 1960. Two years before the Cuban Missile Crisis, four nukes went off in 1960. France tested three nuclear bombs. And John Coltrane drops one of the biggest nukes in the history of music in the United States that year. Giant Steps released in 1960, isn't just John Coltrane going ballistic, although his recording and the subsequent release in 1960 was an explosion in the world of jazz music. There's a whole Wikipedia page entry dedicated to trying to explain Giant Steps, what it is as a piece of music, what it is as a cultural artifact, and people still study and try to figure out musically how Coltrane was able to execute the solo that he did on that track. 
it doesn't seem that a jazz recording from the 1960s has any relevance to what we've been talking about. Well, I think there are two metaphors we can pull from this without overreaching. On the one hand, we can say Giant Steps is representative of the kind of virtuoso savant level performance that proves that there's only a select few among all of the rest who will master the skills and abilities needed to transcend to that higher plane of existence performance. Exceptionalism. All the rest will need to master the skills and abilities needed to transcend to that plane and probably won't. That this kind of a recording proves that there are zones and systems and these are the barriers that we must be able to cross. Find your Rubicon in that space. Don't be afraid. Commit. Failure might be the only thing that waits for you on the other shore. Basically, we'll all end up drowning in the river because there can only be one Caesar. On the other hand, we could pull a different metaphor. Not from the hindsight of a technical breakdown of the recording, but looking at it for what it really was, what led up to it, and what it meant to make that performance. A moment of improvisation, a moment that a performer, John Coltrane, stepped beyond, outside of, didn't need, shrugged off, the limitations of the established perspectives and elevated himself by going outside and beyond those defined spaces. The solo does work within the structure, of course, but the real complexity is to make sense of it after the fact. You can find diagrams of the track, breaking it into maybe what we might say in Exercise physiology terms could be analogous to phases or maybe to the zones. You can read articles. You can look at the circle of fifths. Vox has a video talking all about giant steps. And even if you do all that, you'll be no closer to being John Coltrane or playing giant steps than you were when you had never even heard of it. And even if you learn to cover the track, as a lot of people try to do in that genre of music performance, it's still not the same because its power is rooted in the improvisational environment. And once it's been improvised, all you can do is imitate, emulate. The zones explain it after the fact. They don't create going forward. Coltrane didn't do this in a vacuum. Improvisation doesn't exist in an empty space. The 
Thesaurus of Scales and Melodic Patterns, published in 1947 by Nicholas Slominski, inspired John Coltrane. For those of you who don't know, because music isn't a domain that you spend a lot of time in, at least not in a level of performance or academic study, there's such thing as music theory. People understand the relationships between sounds, between structures of sounds, how structures of sounds develop over time. Music is a much more creative space in many ways than sport, or at least we choose to see sport as much less creative than music. Maybe that's not actually true. Sport has too much militarism and rigidity and conformity built into its history. Even the hipster athletes, gravel cyclists, are all, when you think about it, kind of conforming with each other. Euclid's common principles, two things like the same thing are equal to each other. If I am equal to being unique and you are equal to being unique, I equals you. Nobody's unique. Improv isn't less than zones. It's not equal to zones. It's not better. It's more. It's encompassing. And it comes from somewhere. Coltrane's ideas came from, were inspired by, in part, the thesaurus of scales and melodic patterns. The thesaurus of scales and melodic patterns isn't giant steps. Giant steps isn't the thesaurus of scales and melodic patterns, but they need each other in a sense, or else they both lose their significance. Improvisation works like that. It's a co-dependent relationship. It is reliant on ideas, and yet at the same time, it exists in a degree of freedom from those ideas. It's not random crap that people produce out of nowhere, a mishmash of sounds like a little kid setting up the kitchen pots and pans and pretending it's a drum set. And I think for some people, it's hard to hear the improvisation at work at first. If you don't listen to musics that rely on improvisation or at least incorporate it into their performance, it all just washes over us. But when you start to think a little bit more about what you're hearing and you start to become aware of where the predetermined written music ends and the elastic space of creation in the moment begins, you start to see things differently. Nobody likes whiskey. It's a social construct. It's a signal to a society that just sort of flows out of us because we react to the landscape in which we exist. It's an improvisation. It's improvisation because it works. That's why we admire it. That's true of so many different things that we engage in, that we define as important, that we define as meaningful. We construct and build that value. Improvisation 
is something that we come to understand over time. Even if you don't love jazz, and even if you don't understand on a performance level how it works, we can all understand the concept of improvisation and come to recognize it when it's happening. And we can gain a respect and an appreciation for the way in which it fills a space, which otherwise wouldn't be filled with something else, but would just be empty. Because there's a limit to what pre-scripted and prescribed things can provide when we talk about performance. For those of you who are musicians, you know what this is when we talk about improvisation. It's working within a framework to create something successful. The sounds work with other sounds, and you can hear and feel when it's working. But allowing the success to come up from what sometimes feels like some other part of the brain, something other than the central planner and consciousness and constantly mindful space in which our sense of self resides, is something that you start to intuitively recognize when that mechanism is in play. And yet it's so difficult to try to convey what that is, whether through comparing it to a feeling or describing it as an idea to people who aren't musicians and haven't experienced that. Now, I'm not an elite musician, but if I'm being honest, I am as I happen to be at so many things, not elite, but a lot better than average. From the limited experience I have playing in jazz ensembles, I can tell you that improvisation and getting into that space is more complex and more straightforward than you might assume. It's complex because it just kind of starts happening. It sort of makes sense in your brain what comes next. You don't feel yourself deciding I don't know how those decisions happen, but you start to just sort of feel the need for the note before you play it. And one thing leads to the next and leads to the next. It's thinking on a level that we don't usually maybe experience thinking unless you regularly practice this sort of thing. It's complex because it's unique to different individuals. I think, or I guess, for professional musicians, people who really mastered that level of craft, I think that they are able to go through the motions and imitate or create any particular desired kind of style of improvisation or music on demand. But there's maybe no real authenticity to that in a sense, because you're just creating something that has already been previously conceived, a space that has already been explored and defined. You're not venturing into anything new or unique to you as an individual. On the other hand, it's amazingly simple. 
Because when you put yourself in the right context, if you allow yourself to feel good, if you can hear well, you know when the key is changing and you know what to do. You don't have to think. It just comes out of that other part in your mind that's there, but that you can't ever seem to communicate with. That's what we want to develop. Our musical ear, but instead in the context of sport and athletics. How can we hear or feel when the key changes? And how can we open up to that ability to recognize and to improvise and to go into that space that hasn't been explored and defined and to make something that makes sense, something that works? I'm not here trying to argue that my zones, which we've mentioned earlier in the podcast, are somehow different or an alternative. And I think zones are something that will always be around, just like music theory will always be around. There's a need and a value and a real utility and benefit to being able to try to understand the mechanisms by which things happen. Just like Coltrane drew inspiration, the thesaurus of scales and melodic patterns, we also, as athletes, can draw inspiration from the ideas of people like Jack Daniels, from the different kinds of training models and physiological systems and studies and observations. But we know it's not always going to be effective to be too locked in on that. And when we don't know how to improvise and when we don't know how to think and when we don't know how to process, then we lose the ability to do what's going to be effective. We end up missing the key changes and all of a sudden we enter into a mode of dissonance. My zones aren't the alternative. That was never the goal. But the difference between my subjective zones and these measured idealized zones, they demonstrate that we need an alternative. And that alternative maybe isn't to be found in yet another zone model. But instead, it's maybe to be found outside of that space. How can we understand how to go into those undefined spaces and places and create something new by applying further the things we already know? There are three criteria to improvisation in training. And this episode, which is our finale for our Learn to Fly arc, is going to really, in some ways, only scratch the surface of these three things. Because the process of understanding these is always ongoing and developing. It's always being improvised. Number one, how do we identify 
our zones by feeling and by self-referencing as they are constantly changing in response to us and response to our environment and to the interaction between those two things. Number two, ratio. The ratio of how hard versus how productive sometimes is 10 watts or five seconds per mile difference. What's going to make all the difference? People tend to lean into the pain space. Maybe we want to avoid that. Number three, rejuvenation. Can we frame a distinction between the concept of recovery, which is our current and most common understanding of the things that happen between the sessions and the periods of training that are supposedly productive, versus the concept of rejuvenation? What does it mean to be rejuvenated? Does that entail something different? Does that require more improvisation? Let's start with the first of our three criteria and explore that. Zones. We've contrasted again my zones. You can see those on the Instagram if you want to refer back to that now. Could be relevant or helpful to get a better visual for what we're talking about here. And we see that those are not the same as the running zones that you would develop from looking at a Jack Daniels VDOT chart from the Daniels running formula. It's interesting to think about the use of the word formula. Formula implies sort of a fixed or a permanent or an absolute solution. My cycling zones are even more different than the conventional seven cycling zones from Andrew Coogan, nor do they really necessarily align with any of the other models out there right now of how you should distribute your work and intensity per se. You could look for that alignment, but I don't think it's fair to say that they're the same because they haven't developed to try to imitate those. So it wouldn't be that my zones in cycling are the same as those zones or polarized training or whatever. It would be because polarized training or attempts to describe those kinds of practices that people are applying are reflective of what people are actually doing. And that's what's interesting about, in particular, polarized training is if you look at and you listen to what Steven Seiler has to say about the research and the thinking he did that led him to make the observations that, you know, then have been oversimplified as, you know, inevitably seems to happen into books like 80-20 Training by Matt Fitzgerald, you know, it's because he was studying and trying to look at what is the aggregate kind of practices by people across the successful elite endurance athlete population. And he reached that conclusion of distributed workload. 
Now, we know that that elite population is probably going to be influenced to varying degrees by methodologies, physiological systems. We've talked in the pod about how elite athletes might be partly elite, but might also be people who are responsive to the kinds of discipline-based training. And there might be people out there who are elite potential athletes who don't ever get to that point because those methods or approaches of training aren't what are going to work for them, right? And we've talked about that on an adrenal or a stress level, right? And that they may need more autonomy, they may need more purpose um, and mastery opportunities in what they're doing versus this industrialized mass production, high efficiency, the athlete comes to the training center, they do and they don't understand what they're doing, but the celebrated valuable characteristic is that they do when they don't understand. And that's totally against the concept of improvisation. Improvisation isn't doing things at random. We already have a word for doing things at random. It's random. Uh, improvisation doesn't work like that. We need to be able to adapt and respond in a very different kind of way. And it has to be applying the things that we've learned. And I think some athletes get to this point through their own autodidacticism, which maybe I'm making up a word there, but I basically mean to say the extent to which you're an autodidact, the extent to which you excel at self-teaching and putting yourself in situations where that kind of self-teaching, self-directed learning is possible. And future guests on the show, that's one of the dynamics that I'm hoping to explore is how does improvisation and autodidactic tendencies impact or influence people's experiences as athletes? I also think that we want to make a distinction when we think about improvisation between fitness and performance, because bridging from fitness into performance is very difficult sometimes. I can think of so many instances in which I just feel I've experienced disconnects both between the quality of my workouts being far superior to the quality of my races. And that happened most consistently for me as an NCAA athlete. And then on the other hand, I can think of contexts in which, and this has been more true as you know, an amateur adult athlete, somebody who does their athletics around their professional career, and in that space, my race results far exceed the level of my workouts. What does that suggest about the connection between fitness and performance? Do we really even think about or measure fitness correctly? Is that difficulty a reflection of the value of training zones? I think it is and it isn't. I think that the training zones really take the place of the thesaurus of scales and melodic patterns that John Coltrane drew inspiration from. Those zones can be really helpful in learning, but they're helpful in getting to the point where improvisation is possible. We can see really good execution of what the zones tell us to do and see great performance and average performance and terrible performance. And we can see really terrible execution of what the zones tell us to do, and we can see terrible performance and average performance and great performance. 
So there's suggestion of causation, but there's also suggestion of no causation or correlation at the same time. That's an interesting paradoxical space that seems to emerge then as we look at this kind of stuff. In a race, fitness matters. If you think about something like a very specific bracketed effort, like a max effort time trial on the bike or a record attempt in running, then you know something based on an educated guess of what you can hold for that duration, the strength of that guess could be informed by what you've done in training. But I have found that I have a different sense now of what I can do in a race, and I'm not drawing that from any particular basis of what I can do in training. I'm relating to some other thing that I don't quite understand, but it's accurate and predictive. There's something that I'm feeling and responding to, and frankly, trying to understand what that is is one of the goals of the podcast is to explore that concept. And that's where talking to a lot of different people about their experiences can be helpful here. Because fitness, as I believe we've said before on the pod, is something that is bigger and more dynamic than just something like a lactate threshold test or some other metric that we use to establish zones. And you can have superior fitness but not necessarily be at a point where you're ready to actualize that. And there might be specific things you need to do to take the fitness that's already there and sculpt that and apply that and sharpen that to something that you can specifically apply it to. Is fitness a resource that we use to build the tools that we use to perform, right? What is the relationship between these different things? Another interesting thought is to say that maybe the zones are real and they exist and they're out there, but the means by which we are identifying them are just so crude or limited that it's obfuscating the potential of using that kind of distinctive thinking. In other words, I think there should be more criteria involved in determining what zone or training intensity should be than we currently use. And adding things like checking our lactate, checking our heart rate, checking our core temperature, all of those are anti-cognitive. And by anti-cognitive, I mean they're removing the athlete from the relationship of sport, performance, and individual. And I think that's a mistake because you are the engine and the driver and the chassis all at once. And we've gotten into this space where we're trying to find these simple, literally formulaic, algorithmic processes. We've talked before about what is a whoop? Is that really additive to sport? It represents a solution. It's marketed as something to make things easier. Is it actually creating the value that it says? And even if it could create that value, is that really good? Is it beneficial to be able to outsource that? Are we going about this maybe incorrectly because do we ultimately cut out the things that we want to be incorporating because those are the pieces that are going to change 
and improve our relationship with fitness training and performance. And that's the pathway to get better is developing our cognitive ability to engage with this stuff. There's a really great RSA animate video on YouTube that I recommend everybody check out uh, with Dan Pink. And it talks about the surprising truth about what motivates us. And he refers to a study done where they offer people increasing sums of money to perform different tasks. And essentially, there were tasks that were basic manual physical labor, like lifting heavy weights. And that when you offered more and more money, the level of performance improved. And that's an idea of a direct incentive. And that's an industrial concept of incentives, by the way. That's a capitalist industrial concept of incentives, that workers and productivity is motivated by specific, tangible, measurable rewards like cash. The other set of considerations, um, the other side of the study was to look at complex tasks in terms of they were cognitively complex. They required more thinking and problem solving. And what they found is that offering higher and higher cash incentives led to a decline in performance. And then from this, Dan Pink goes into talking about how for tasks that require high levels of cognitive engagement, autonomy, purpose, and mastery become really important. Now, we tend to regard athletics as, by their nature, being this very brute, simple activity. And I think the act of running hard, cycling hard in a immediate context, you know, in the context of a few pedal strokes or whatever, that's maybe something where a cash incentive could be meaningful. But when you start to increase the pressure on people, right, then you're not seeing a proportional increase in performance. And I think this is especially true in individual endurance sports, but I'm also confident that it's true in other team sports and games where there's a lot of tactics and strategy involved. You hear people talk all the time about, you know, they need to relax and they need to stop overthinking it. Isn't that sort of this idea that maybe can make us think of like, are we opening up a space in our brain for that improvisation, that more unconscious mechanism to express itself? Okay. And endurance sports are like that too, because the ability to know, is this the right effort? The runner's ability to know, I'm currently running six minute pace, even though I have no machine or device to tell me that and to be absolutely correct the ability of the cyclist to know whether they're at threshold to know how many watts they're producing maybe even to know how many miles per hour they're traveling without any machine reference to tell them that that's a very real thing you know maybe not that specific piece right that knowledge maybe isn't improvisation but that knowledge is the ability to hear the key changes that's that musical ear equivalent and if we can't develop that capacity, then I would argue we're not going to see improvisation. So by turning that off through all of these mechanisms, through formulaic and algorithmic approaches to physical fitness development and training and racing, we're just creating a sample size that is going to prove that when the athletes are allowed to be more autonomous, there's going to be less performance. But that's because we're not allowing that to develop. 
Like we need to train and develop that part of our brain as we do this stuff. Because if we don't provide that space, we're not going to see the development that we want. I have found through my own personal experience training and racing that my velocities and intensities of in my preparation and my training are totally out of keeping with my race intensity. Seven minute pace is stupidly easy if I'm running something that's a, around a marathon distance in length, but can be shockingly mentally demanding to try to do for 25 minutes at 5.30 in the morning or at 3.30 in the afternoon because I don't think that the determining factor there is the time of day. Although there's been some interesting research and exploration done in the past about whether exercising at certain times of day has an impact on how people feel. And it would make sense that it does, but I don't think that's the single factor here where, well, if you just switch it to a different time of day, then the zones will work. That's just sort of the mentality of, well, we whatever we do, we need to get back to the point of validating only using the zones or the interventions or the paces. And I would imagine that probably the people who develop those systems, ironically, would in their own practice probably be more responsive to other things than just what maybe their protocol or their formula or their table of paces or their fixed idea of what the correct wattage is leads them to think is the correct practice or approach. And this is true of other people's experiences too, this level of disconnect. And I think the disconnect becomes more evident because people have the capacity to collect the data. And I think looking at the data on our training, instead of causing us to maybe say, okay, wow, you know, doing it in the prescribed way in this from this particular resource or this particular piece of literature doesn't work for me. People start to experience anxiety and self-doubt and confusion and, you know, in some sense, a level of like overload to what they're trying to do. As we already said, this is just scratching the surface in some ways to introduce and try to provide enough thinking to frame what improvisation is, but trying to explore that and develop that is difficult. In some sense, you know, not to sound absurd, but we're talking about trying to find our athletic voice in the way that a jazz musician has to find their particular style or voice of improvisation. And in future episodes, that's a part of what we're going to be continuing to try to explore because there's going to be a variety of voices and spaces in which people are going to find that it's more or less effective for them to be able to develop those. It could be that depending on how your fitness develops, or it could be that as fitness develops and improves, our sense of those spaces is going to shift. If you look at the numbers, even with power on a power meter, riders with different thresholds, and this doesn't take um, a study with uh, participants to prove this. All you need to do is take out a calculator or a spreadsheet and you can do this. And the zones, the seven zones, or if you want to use a different model of cycling zones, it doesn't matter, but they're calculated based on usually percentages of lactate threshold. And those percentages exist in ranges. And what you see, and this is mathematically uh, intuitive for some people without calculating it out, 
But what you see is as your threshold goes up, the size of your zones increases. So let me describe specifically uh, what that is for those of us who aren't feeling warmed up to this kind of thinking on our own at the moment. So let's take the idea of sweet spot, which is the training concept that there's a relationship where if you look at the highest end of zone two through zone three and into the upper middle of zone four, the lactate threshold, that you have this optimal state of relatively low physiological strain compared to the um, amount of potential training effect. And you can still do a um, relatively high duration of work. And that combines together to basically say, this is the most effective and productive use of your time is to spend as much time in that zone as possible. And that's where you see uh, like the fast cat coaching stuff and that business coaching business um, organizes around this principle uh, in part. And if you look at, and this is what I did here, is I took uh, four hypothetical riders and a rider of 140 watts, 240 watts, 340 watts, and 440 watts FTP. And I said, well, practically speaking, how big are these zones? Because we talk about these zones as if the only difference is the speed or the actual power required to be in these zones, depending on where your lactate threshold is. And when you do the math, uh, when you look at that sweet spot range, for the 140-watt FTP rider, the sweet spot range is 30 watts. And then if you go all the way up to the uh, FTP um, of 440 watts, their sweet spot range is 80 watts. So the specific numbers are a sweet spot of 110 to 130 at the low end. And then I'll give you the intermediate riders too. The next rider has a 40 watt range of 150 to 190 for their sweet spot. The next rider had a sweet spot of 200 to 260, which is a 60 watt range. And then we're up to the 80 watt range again for that last individual. That's pretty significant because if the changes in zones are some sort of an attempt to articulate or recognize sort of like a kind of a key change, although I think that there's a lot more different forms of the things that we're metaphorically comparing to key changes than just these sort of changes in what are the physiological adaptations that are likely to be more predominant in response to a particular training intensity. Essentially, though, what we're seeing is that the stronger you are, the more flexible and easy it is to play in those key changes. Whereas for the lower fitness athlete, it almost might feel like you only maybe have two zones. And this is a concept that I think we want to emphasize in particular, is that in order to become a fitter person, you must first be a less fit person. So what happens if as a less fit person, those zones are harder to feel because the gap is very small? And because of your lack of experience, presumably, if your fitness is low and you're a beginner, your ability to find those 
zones is very different. And remember, watts are power, right? We're measuring that. And that's, you know, a physics thing. So we're not making that up. You know, there's tangible evidence that's saying that it is literally harder because the target space is smaller. It's harder to be in that state. And what really then becomes the distinction in terms of what we feel. And I feel for me uh, as an athlete that I have oftentimes struggled with the sense that the distinction between one state and the other is so small that I feel that I'm either going easy or I'm going, you know, too hard. And that the idea or the model is that, no, you're in this space here that is this optimally productive space. But for me, it felt unproductive. And maybe that's because it was, because I couldn't really get into that space or that space didn't exist for me. What if, though, the purpose and the benefit of training isn't to hit a better number according to a particular physiological testing protocol in a lab environment or in a sort of field test environment with things like um, portable lactate meters? But what if the benefit of fitness is? a cognitive thing where we're actually doing something that is very complex in terms of our thinking. And as oftentimes happens with skills and abilities, as we really develop and refine them, they begin to feel very simple to us. And it's easy to forget how challenging um, that was earlier in that process. And to the point where we can become so competent at something that we can sort of basically struggle to even begin to try to teach or explain to somebody how to do this stuff. And certainly in American culture, oftentimes there's a belief that the act of teaching and education is incredibly simple. Those who can't do teach after all, but maybe that's not really the right attitude, right? Maybe that's incorrect. Maybe it's actually very complicated and difficult and challenging to try to relate back to that experience of not understanding and engage with somebody in that space and think about how to bring them forward through that. Because it doesn't take much to give a stimulus. Again, even aerobic baseline is going to move you forward. Again, aerobic baseline we're saying is take your total training volume you you would do under a more specialized system and then just divide it evenly per day and do 80 to 90% of it at zone two and the rest of it a little bit easier. You're going to get benefit from that. It doesn't take much to improve if you do stuff consistently and you do it up to a reasonable amount. And if that's the case, isn't what we're trying to do with specific training a very subtle, slight process of overload beyond that? The distinction between what is productive and what is counterproductive, or in some cases destructive, can be very subtle. And we can cross into that maybe well before what our model of reference or formula of reference is telling us is the case, because we're not processing other information. We're totally externalizing and putting our confidence. And I guess the reality is sometimes it looks like people engaging in basically acts of faith, which is to say that they're believing in things that they don't understand or can't perceive whether or not they actually have value, exist, or work. But they're deferring to these systems because they're being told that they're effective. And that's the basically exclusive basis on which we're making choices. And as people, we, we do this all the time. 
And, you know, I think we're, as athletes, we need to find the distinction between trusting something versus just having faith in it. Because I think trust, we want to be like a little bit more informed. And again, though, that's where doing this stuff is a little more cognitively complex than we might sometimes like to imagine. And actualization versus development, I think, kind of illustrates that principle of the very being a very subtle distinction. When you're trying to generate performance that comes from the fitness already established and the training zones shift because in a broader sense, you need to, uh, different blocks of intensity up and down the ladder in terms of how do you go from that, maybe we can say general fitness or maybe just more so amorphous or unshaped fitness into that specific thing. Do you want to run the 800 meter? Do you want to ride the Tour de France? Do you want to do something in between that? You know, there's a lot of similarities between what you need to be able to develop in order to be good at both of those kinds of things and everything else in between. And then there's a lot of significant differences too. And those similarities and differences are existing at the same time, right? It's not to say that you need to decide if the 800 is similar or different from the Tour de France. It's to say that we need to recognize that they are similar and different. And in some ways, their differences also circle back to become kinds of similarities because the fact that there are specific distinctions, although the nature of those distinctions and what exists within those distinctions is different, the fact that those distinctions exist in multiple different scenarios of targeted performance means that they must be similar, if that makes any sense. A simpler way to think about what it would mean then to try to be improvising in an effective and productive way could be to think about something like organizing your concept of what you can do based around what feels manageable for an hour. Because when we talk about variation in performance and we talk about variation in, say, lactate threshold from day to day or the amount of lactate you're producing at different intensities of work measured in wattage or some other uh, force factor, you're basically saying in simpler terms that what you can do for an hour is different every single day. Sometimes that difference could be so subtle as to be meaningless. And sometimes that difference could be so, so significant as to make what you're trying to do basically impossible. And I think if you can think about that, right, then you can get to a different concept of what kind of a zone means at any given time. And for example, if you can't work continuously for 60 minutes running, right? If you can't run continuously for 60 minutes, or you can't ride continuously for 60 minutes without resting, then that basically means you have a lactate threshold that for all intensive functional purposes, um, where your velocity is, that's occurring at a velocity that's lower than your um, running intensity at velocity or than your cycling intensity at velocity. And then from that, you're sort of scaling up and down from there based on where you feel the efforts change. So for example, if you can't run for an hour, then maybe there's just three zones for you, walking, dying, and being actively dead in a sense, right? You need to accept that. And I say that because I've been there. You know, when I've been, I've talked on the pod about trying to go from 
um, not running for a while to try to get back into running. And that's what it felt like. I was walking, I was dying. And then if I went any harder, I was essentially a corpse. And, and that's as somebody who had been at a totally different level of running in the past. And, you know, I had to accept that in order to move forward. I couldn't, there was no space to apply anything more complicated, even if I wanted to, because those zones didn't exist for me. And that goes back to that concept of when your threshold is really small, that you're seeing that distinction, that issue. So over time, though, you see this change, right? This expands and it develops. And I think this is reflected by people talking about having extra gears. And I'm talking about that in the concept of running. That's a term that I've heard used um, to describe what it feels like to have more fitness, right? And of course, in cycling, right, you can talk about running out of gears, um, sometimes in a negative way, but sometimes in a good way of like you had the capacity to go. My brother lost um, a bike race in New York State uh, at one one year because uh, he had the team he was on had their Cannondales were equipped with, I think, like a semi-compact group set. So because he had a 52 and the person who was left with him in the race had uh, a 53 or might have even been bigger, I don't know. And the finish line was sort of slightly downhill. There was nothing he could do. He was just spinning, you know, almost freewheeling, it felt like at that point, right? So you can get to that point of fitness where you maybe literally need more gears if you're a cyclist. And I think you'll see too, right? People slapping on 55 tooth chain rings uh, in some cases when you're talking about certain triathletes at a really high level or time trialists at a really high level. So, our sense of differentiation then between these zones is also expanding. And we need to define and understand what that expansion looks like. And the best thing to do is to try to think about how it feels. For example, do you feel strong? And I think you need to feel strong for at least 50% of whatever distance you're doing, let's say if you're racing, and probably closer to five-sevenths. And I think that rule applies in general with training. You want to feel good at least five-sevenths of the time, which is 71% of the time. And if you're not doing that, you can't progress. And I think people oftentimes push into that zone of distress, right, into that pain space, because they think that's where the progression is going to happen. And you need to distribute your sessions in your zones based on how you feel. So these zones of feeling versus these zones of abstraction or formula, does it feel steady, right? What are the keys that we can use for that. And this might require for some of us, a lot of us more experienced athletes, retraining our brain so that we don't think trashing ourselves is productive. You've been conditioned. It's a social construct. Nobody likes whiskey. How we feel can be trusted in a sense, right? As long as we're approaching it rationally. You know, before we have knowledge about this stuff, we're just empty vessels waiting to be filled by the first thing that's presented to us. And if we can shift kind of and recognize that and say, maybe the first things I absorbed and put in the place to answer these questions aren't right, we can arm ourselves for a little bit of a paradigm shift. We need to be able to hear the chord changes.
ratio. How are we balancing the relationship between feeling good and working hard at the same time? And that's really challenging as athletes. Every time I go and try to do something specific, I spend the whole session wondering if it's too easy and too hard at the exact same time. I've never gotten to the point, to be completely honest, where I felt confident or at ease with that aspect of it. And that's probably one of the factors that makes it so that I really struggle with doing that kind of specific work. But I think if I had to source that origin of that, I would say that comes from doing a lot of workouts where I struggled and I reached a point of physical failure, but then the information that came back to me directly or indirectly through the team environment and the training philosophy that maybe the coach was with good intentions sharing was that, well, my effort was insufficient to be productive. And the only way that I could have been more productive in the workout would have been to go harder in terms of intensity, but I couldn't even handle that level of intensity as it was. And I think you can begin to see how circular that kind of process of trying to think through that becomes and you know how I think kind of limiting and uh, negative that was for me. You know, my need to try to understand and make sense of things, um, which I generally feel is a strength, you know, maybe in that context, if I didn't feel the need to think about that, maybe that would have been helpful and I would have been more comfortable just sort of doing whatever I could do. But I also easily could have defaulted to the approach of just saying, well, I guess I'm just going to continue to push myself harder and harder. And there is a physical limit to that. You can't really push as hard as people like to think. Like you can experience a lot of distress, but you're still able to do that because you're literally able to do that. We can't do things we are not capable of doing. And I think we sometimes describe things in this Herculean way because it's exciting to tell those kinds of stories and it's fun. And, you know, that's not untrue. And I'm not saying people shouldn't tell stories of sport in that way. But I think recognizing that you know, tall tales are tall tales is also really important. We can have those tall tales, but we don't take them as, you know, literal or applied evidence for what we're trying to accomplish. So now I use this idea of infra versus super lactate because that's where I find that I can operate. And those are distinctions that I can sort of work within. And those are distinctions that are effective. And I think I've shown that personal training data serves to prove or validate that. And making these distinctions is a part of recognizing maybe what are our current capacities and limitations, and then those recognitions allow us to build that process of improvisation. And there's variance too from day to day in terms of how hard, right, on the one hand, versus how productive. Sometimes going harder feels good, Sometimes going just as hard feels bad. Sometimes certain things are going to be more productive. Sometimes the same things are going to be less productive. We need to be able to identify that stuff and keep that stuff in balance, right? Keep this these things in ratio with each other. Because when you have something hard that you do, you're also draining a psychological resource or 
maybe multiple psychological resources. Algorithms outside of athletics are also very interesting. For example, the Instagram algorithm, having as always my best interests at heart, has decided that I lack discipline and I need to be inspired to be brought over and into the light. Here's a quote from a video uh, that I came across just the other day. Your feelings will never cooperate with your dreams. Beat your feelings into captivity because when you beat your feelings into captivity, that is what discipline is. This is uh, T.D. Jake who operates a mega church called the Potter's House in Dallas, Texas. Uh, if you're looking for inspiration superior in quality to the content you receive on this podcast, I'm sure that you would not be disappointed with what you would find there. But that kind of thinking, I think, is emblematic of not asking questions and not being self-reflective, uh, that you don't need to think about how you feel, right? And that how you feel is in conflict with what we're trying to do. I mean, beat your feelings into captivity. I mean, if you just take that part of it alone, that's kind of an aggressive, uh, unwelcoming, unfriendly concept towards uh, understanding yourself. And I think that's emblematic of some of this idea of not improvising, right? If you can't respond to how you feel, how can you improvise, right? Improvisation is coming out of a level which we might say is more feeling because that next note, that next step is happening because it makes sense. And there's a value to doing that, but we have to learn and develop how to do that, right? We're not trying to be arbitrary in the way that we're responding to how we feel. So instead of listening to this kind of disciplined content on the internet, why don't we maybe think of the capacity to do hard things as a meaningful piece of, I guess, our experience as people? That it's not this thing that we have to do battle with in order to attain the things that we actually want, but that, and this distinction between journey and destination needs to be so heavily evidenced all the time, but maybe that doing those hard things is actually more fun than we give it credit for. And if we're not having that experience, then I would say, well, we're not really in that feel-good place. And when we're not in that space, then we can't really improvise. Giant steps is challenging and difficult. It's challenging and difficult to understand from a music theory perspective, and it's challenging and difficult for people to perform. And the story goes that uh, the pianist on the album um, was basically struggling to improvise over the chord changes um, and the key changes before uh, John Coltrane went into his solo. And that contrast just sort of, I think, served to emphasize the impressive nature of Coltrane's performance. But the opportunity costs in our lives matter when we're trying to engage with this stuff. And it can take away from that and it can interfere with our ability to understand what's going on. I don't think that as people, we should be singularly focused on or obsessed with athletics and our athletics pursuits to the exclusion of everything else. But I also think that 
for better or for worse, the nature of physiology and fitness is that if we don't stay in touch with it on a regular basis, it just tends to dissipate and the body will return back to a, we might say, unfit or you know deconditioned state of physical capacity. And I sometimes get sucked into things. And this can happen all the time for everybody. Parties, video games, relationships, new books, TV shows, you know, like any kinds of things that can capture our imagination and our engagement can do that. It doesn't necessarily mean that these things are bad, but it does mean that it can heighten and alter the balance between what we're trying to do athletically on the one hand versus our other interests and, you know, also sometimes the other things that we just kind of need to do, right? Because not everything we do in life is a product of choice. And I think that's a common sense statement, but it's worth articulating just to be clear that we do understand that as well on this podcast. And that stuff will significantly elevate the mental cost of doing the same training from what it was before. And that could also happen in other directions. You know, if you're going and you've been restless and bored because you've been stuck in a situation or an environment that you don't want to be in, that could make it easier to go out and train. But if you have something that you're really engaged with or obsessed with or excited about, and it's good to be excited and engaged with with different things, but it's still the, the case, and we should understand that that can shift um, how hard. It can make it harder to go out and do the same thing. So there are these external factors, these things that these externalities of opportunity cost, um, externalities to what we're doing athletically, right, feeds into these opportunity cost dynamics and can make really have a psychological impact. And that can change that ratio. So in that case, right, you need to figure out how do you change what you're doing. And this is where if you feel good, then the value or benefits of training will generally be high enough that, you know, they'll compete evenly with whatever that new, maybe obsessive or exciting thing that's also giving you rewards. I think it's totally possible to make space for both. The reality is, is that exercise really doesn't take up all that much time during your day unless you're at some incredible level. And one of the things we've referenced in the pod is the article how to skate a 10k and you know the it's autobiographical um and when the author you know talks about that one of the things he said is that when he was doing his sort of his base period or his aerobic period he only would work out five days in a row and he would do 30 hours which i mean he was in a position where that was what he was doing right you know most of us even if we want to wouldn't be able to do that but you know people spend 40 hours a week at work in five days and oftentimes a lot more than that all the time, right? And then we have time um, to do other things and and we find that balance. And I think that's where how do we organize around this stuff becomes significant. So if you can engineer that balance through building habits and positive experiences, you know, making your training enjoyable and fun. And a part of that is being in a space where, right, you're able to adapt and adjust so that what you're doing, you know that when you go to do what you're going to do, that it's going to be worthwhile. Make training a space 
you go to to feel good and it will always be a place where you want to go. Don't screw yourself over by committing to things because you feel ideologically that that's what you have to do or else you won't improve. Now, sometimes things are beyond our control, of course. I struggle with this and I know a lot of other people struggle with this. It's the feeling of, well, I need to do this. And it's that questioning of, well, I don't feel I can do this, but is that just me being lazy or not being engaged or not being mentally tough? But maybe doing what you plan 95% of the time is better than doing what you planned 100% of the time. You know, And if you have a hard time telling yourself, no, I don't need to do this, sometimes the that can lead to kind of an avoidance strategy where it's just like, well, I'm not even going to plan to do these things in the first place, because if I go out to do them and then they're not working, I'm just going to either force myself to do it, you know, and it's going to be miserable and I'm going to, you know, suffer the consequence, um, which could be, you know, fatigue. It could be contributing to getting an injury in some cases. It could also just be, you know, making it so you don't want to go out and do the exercise because now it's left a bad taste in your mouth. Um, and, you know, for me, I know that comes from the conviction that I'm simply not good enough no matter what I do. So there's no such thing as enough. So I need to do as much as I possibly can. And I don't in practice act that out because I have that awareness. And I know that that's an example of a feeling or a kind of a key change, a chord change that I don't want to respond to. I don't want to start improvising off of that feeling because that leads to exhaustion and driving yourself to exhaustion is not this like miracle path to athletic brilliance. I have experimented with this. It does not work. We also want to account for physiological variation when we think about the concept of our ratio. Sometimes doing things just feels totally messed up and impossible. And if you think these thresholds are fixed, you're going to struggle. And there's two arguments about this. One is that the only benefit is to work at the measured threshold state or in the measured zone state. Um, and the second is that the goal of training is to induce the conditions in which adaptation occur. And I say those are two arguments because these things are not necessarily the same. The body is responding to training because it thinks it's in a survival paradigm shift of some kind, and then it will change itself in response to that. It's the same reason why it's hard to lose weight. When the body thinks it's in a survival situation because it thinks it's in a famine or it's starving to death, it's not going to respond to reduce food by suddenly shedding weight. It's going to respond by trying to constrain calories and motivating you to eat more. And when you think about that way, it makes total evolutionary sense. So we need to be sensitive to if you're actually feeling stronger and repeating similar loops in training is a great way to see this. With workouts, the possibility to prove yourself helps us to force a superior result. You know, an example of this is we had a session in college where we did repeat 600s at the end of cross country, and it was dark out, and I think it might have even been, you know, overcast and cloudy, right? So there was no moonlight or starlight. So the the vans that the, the school rented for team use, some of them got driven up to the edge of the track and turned the headlights on that illuminated a part of that track. And 
you have this consequence of everybody going out there and just hammering this workout because the environment became exciting and intense and it creates this illusion right of improvement but when you create those environments it can be fun but those might not be the environments where we want to see that because that's also shifting the ratio between what what feels hard and what's productive and you made it feel easier but we didn't it didn't necessarily make it feel more productive per se or maybe it felt more productive, but might not have actually been more productive, right? Because that can also, there's a distinction there too. Harder is not more productive. Productive is productive. Hard is hard. That's a case of mutual exclusion. If you're going hard, you aren't doing it right, I would argue. That perception of things being hard, though, is what people tend to look for. So if we separate these two things, that's how we're starting to now create the ratio we want. And how to do that's tricky. It takes active evaluation. That's why as a coach, I switched at one point from running with all athletes all the time to watching when we were doing specific work. And in those sessions and in general, I constantly tried to talk with the athletes about what they were feeling and experiencing because that was, I think, the more important insight. And then I was trying to model and develop that cognitive ability for the athletes. And I don't know to what extent that that's something they carried forward because that was just one, you know, little point, um, one small voice in this whole maelstrom conversation and dialogue about, you know, block out how you feel to overcome and become. But as a starting point in talking about ratios here, we want to feel strong, the point at which Uh, you no longer feel strong, that's when you need to stop or you need to slow down or maybe stop, restart, and do it slower. A friend of mine uh, has put it in a way that I thought was really insightful to say that uh, with interval training, he thinks of intervals as a way to make it easier to do what you're trying to do, not harder. So he might identify a pace or a wattage that he thinks would be beneficial to work at, and then he uses... uh, rest and recovery to break that into intervals to make it easier. I think that's a really good way to think of it because you're really applying the concept of ratio, right? And, you know, improvisation and training could be at the stage of planning what you're going to do. And, you know, he also is somebody whom it seems, um, you'd have to ask him, I guess, specifically, but it seems like he tends to develop his training sort of more incrementally. So, Hard also doesn't mean challenging. Those are not the same term. Challenge is good. We want to do things that are challenging. Getting dragged behind a school bus, you know, hooked up to a chain is bad. And I would say we should give credit to Jack Daniels for trying to get people to understand the importance of rest. It would be interesting to know if there was an ability to really go out and study how people were responding and applying those ideas, would that have led to significant revision of the book in order to communicate based on how people were responding? I think it communicates what's what it wants to communicate correctly, but is it communicating it effectively, right? And that's sort of the dilemma of the classroom teacher is you can say something in the most correct and accurate way but that doesn't necessarily mean that it leads to any benefit. And effective teaching is something that requires improvisation too. But with these physiological models, there doesn't really seem to be a norm around 
We put the model out there. Now let's look at how the general population is engaging with and implementing that. And I think a part of that has to do with the market dynamic of these things are being produced in order to sell a product. And the point is to get people to consume it. It's not necessarily there because there's an incentive to optimize the performance of those individuals. And that's another disconnect is the athletes that get interviewed who perform at a high level, these systems work better for them. And they might just sort of talk in dogmatic terms about that because they don't have any clear understanding. But coaches are oftentimes, um, and interestingly, sort of sometimes marginalized figures. I think sometimes they're more celebrated and sometimes they're less celebrated depending on the sporting culture they're in. But where, you know, their role of maybe adjusting and interpreting how to apply the model sort of gets washed out and doesn't get represented. And I think that that concept is then that we're seeing adaptation response and improvisation at play among high-level performing athletes, but that for a lot of us, we aren't really seeing that because we're sort of left to interpret and apply these formulas and these algorithms and these physiological models. And for us, oftentimes, a logical conclusion is I need to do this as precisely as we possibly can. Rejuvenation. Now, after we do this work, we determine what is the right level to work at. We try to figure out what our actual kinds of zones should be. And then we try to think about in ratio, how do we balance working hard against what's actually productive? How do we keep the externalities in balance so that it's easier to engage with these things so we can get the benefit of being able to be consistent? We are always going to be left with the reality that you don't develop the most productive training day and then just do it again and again and again and again. There's going to be variance to that. And muscular fatigue can influence that for one thing, but there's other forms of fatigue that we also want to consider. This concept of recovery, as it's most often referred to, but in this podcasts, we're going to try to think about it in different ways. And a part of that means trying to use different terms because words are vehicles for ideas. But the concept of recovery is something to explore a lot in general. And we see it referenced a lot in athletic sports culture. And I think we want to just try to focus on understanding a basic version of this for now. So specifically, we need to see recovery as the ability to maintain a certain state of training. Don't think of it as being uh, a dynamic of either you're training for benefit on a given day or session or not, right? You are in training, I think is a phrase that people used to use a lot more. I mean, I don't really know anybody, quite frankly, who speaks like that anymore. Maybe that phrase in training is just another anachronism of sports culture in the past, but I think it's more insightful than we might automatically assume to be the case. People in the past, um, shockingly sometimes, 
are more intelligent than we necessarily give them credit for. And then sometimes they were really stupid, like, you know, drinking poison, trying to run Olympic marathons. So we use a word like rejuvenation. I think that that is a great word because it means paying attention to your level of energy. And I don't mean this in some sort of essential oils or, or crystals or chakra or some other sort of like intangible, um, you know, nonsense spiritualism stuff. Um, I mean this in a genuine sense of recognizing, am I tired or am I feeling activated and ready to go way? It's okay to be tired, right? Improvisation is not a working around of fatigue. Improvisation is adapting to fatigue and recognizing that there's going to be periods of, you might say, creative outburst and productivity, and then there's going to be periods of time when that isn't happening, and that's okay, and that's good. It's not possible to work constantly. And, you know, recovery, taking things easy, though, isn't always necessarily the same thing as leading to having the energy and the capacity to do things. For example, people who take the elevator when they go to work instead of the stairs aren't necessarily more energized. They might be just as tired. They might be even more tired than the people who take the stairs. So it's not this objective level that's being raised or lowered. And again, that's like a limitation of things like a whoop or a Garmin trying to tell you how recovered you are because it's taking this thing um, and it's saying that the capacity to have energy to train and be productive in that space is just this industrialized metric that slides up and down, up and down, and that it's tangible and simple to measure. And I think a lot of these things out there are theoretically things that can be measured, but it seems naive to assume that we're at some peak of technology in society where, of course, however we can measure these things is either the best or it's so close to the best possible way to do it, it may as well basically be the best. I think most of the things we're doing are going to be proved to be shockingly crude. And that's one of the disappointments of not being born 5,000 years later is we won't be able to look back and really understand what was going on during this time with the hindsight of history. Rejuvenation, if it's a process, then is the process of moving out of a state of fatigue. And we get fatigue because the body enters a state in which it needs sleep, it needs food, or it needs enthusiasm, psychological fuel. And if there's fuel, then logically, we burn those down in between periods of filling them back up. And reading a book about exercise, or maybe listening to the Black Cats Run podcast, might be how you fill your enthusiasm back up. That could give you the energy to do this. People will be oftentimes lethargic and I can't do this, I don't have the energy. And then the hardest part, it turns out, was just changing their clothes and getting out the door. And then once they're out the door and they start going, they might feel awesome. And we also want to think about you know muscular fatigue. And I think that can be difficult because some of us are going to experience muscular fatigue in different ways. But that means you know, recognizing how to respond to the terrain that you're training on. And the size of the athlete matters in this regard. I've experienced these sports, cycling uh, and running in particular, I've experienced sports across to 60-pound variance in weight from 140 
three pounds to, you know, 203 pounds. And it's not the same, you know, and it's not just because of a difference in fitness. When you're a bigger athlete, and to be honest, you know, I don't usually look at my weight because I just find it to really not be a useful exercise. Um, but, you know, recognizing my weight, um, I recognize that, you know, you can be athletic and quote unquote large and poundage in terms of the, you know, imagined idealized norms, but maybe really only be off of 10 pounds of your maximum leanness relative for the way your body is built and relative to the kind of muscle mass you have. And when I get to 170 pounds, I sort of get to the point where I'm, I'm basically getting very close to the level at which any further weight loss is now going to probably come from my muscle mass. And is that really beneficial? Because part of the adaptation we're looking for is that muscular development. And that's going to be different for different people. We're responding differently to how we train. And that's good. We don't want to discourage that. Like those are probably the adaptations that are most efficient for our body. Okay. And, you know, maybe there's more, there is specialization of body types in sports, but maybe within those specialized body types, maybe there is variance in terms of, you know, muscular composition and what that should look like. But we get really fixated on the aesthetics of these things very quickly and very easily. And as a bigger athlete, then I know I need to focus on doing flatter courses more often. And I live in an area where it's actually surprisingly hilly. And that can be a dilemma because sometimes the really nice runs and rides that I want to do are the rides and runs where it's really hilly. And I have to sort of have that concept of, well, I need to respond to how I'm feeling appropriately here and I need to make that adjustment. And maybe I thought I was going to be able to go do this loop that is really scenic, but maybe I do this other loop, which is maybe less so because that's where I'm feeling at the time. So there's this distinction between muscular fatigue, sleep, food, and then this other, we're sort of saying like enthusiasm fatigue. And um, I think we can also relate that back to what we talked about with ratio about that opportunity cost, where there's sort of like this opportunity cost can add to fatigue. And basically, um, you know, we can have this sort of like fatigue that causes us to tank our enthusiasm and that that can then put us in a position where we might feel like we need to recover more, but we don't need that uh, physiological definition of recovery right? We need something to realign um, our sense of meaningfulness or purpose in the activity that we're, that we're doing. When you think about the concept of being in a slump is something that comes up in, in some sports, in some contexts. There's things we have clearly have yet to fully understand or recognize about how we function athletically. You know, where does a slump come from? What does that mean, right? There's enough evidence out there that it's clear that people can go through periods in sports of higher or lower performance, but it's not because they're measured or tangible or, you know, narrowly defined concept of fitness is changing. And I don't think we can divide our training into, you know, recovery days and and work days. You know, the reality is when you feel good, you feel good and you need to have the improvisational skills to respond to that. Responding to feeling good is improvisation. And, that also, though, we need to have a good concept of 
what would be appropriate and what's productive and be ready to pull that out and apply that. And that's a part of that training strategy is saying that while doing these kinds of efforts is meaningful and effective versus doing something else is not so effective. And this is different um, than having like a specific goal, right? Goals are something that gets tossed around all the time to the point where people will think have goal equals better result. And it's not magic like that. Um, and we think that because people don't really take the time to explain stuff. People just say things and then there's no other explanation. A goal is about trying to understand what you need to do to accomplish your target. So the question is, how can we figure that out? And that's where we get back into concepts of specificity, what's truly specific in training, which means basically our interventions to provide better performance than baseline. That would be something that's specific than better than baseline training. And the dogma around this um, is to practice engaging with the race conditions intensity, and then you have to counter that with recovery. And I'm not saying you shouldn't engage with race conditions or intensity, but I'm saying it should be done only to the extent that it helps, right? And we need to, it can't interfere with our process of rejuvenation as this more aggregate concept than just recovery. And, you know, diminishing returns also matters. Sometimes that can also mean that, you know, you can't do um, the shitload of additional work that might sometimes be needed uh, to be a success, you know, and if we're not rejuvenating, then, you know, we can be limited our ability to engage with that. So ultimately, Improv training probably looks like being able to do things responsibly in the moment, but it takes practice. And a lot of people just want what's immediately effective. But those immediate models are rarely better than just doing baseline aerobic training for most people. Because if you can't respond in an adaptive improvisational way, I think you probably are better off just doing regular aerobic exercise on a consistent basis. So overall, I think we've defined in this pod what we mean when we say improv training. And the ability to improvise is what's going to get you off the ground and allow you to learn to fly. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Black Cats Run podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed following along our Learn to Fly arc. We're not done with these concepts and ideas. We're just getting started. You can look forward to us continuing to explore and articulate and define and provide examples and evidence about how to train more effectively and get the most out of ourselves, how to feel good, and how to make athletics a meaningful and rewarding part of our life and get as fast as we always deserve to be. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.